Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Robbie Butler, who is a lecturer at University College Cork and is an expert in sports economics. So most of us are at least casual sports fans, but the big question on many minds is probably, where does the economics come into play? And sport is interesting from an economics perspective because you can get insight into what's going on in the context of the sport itself, but you can use that context to help test other economic theories. And Robbie takes us through his research, which has covered a number of of interesting topics. We discuss Fergie time, where it was rumoured that Premier League referees were giving extra time when Alex Ferguson's Man United were playing. We discuss the use of bonus points in rugby and whether they provided the intended incentives or whether they created perverse incentives. And we discuss whether pundits are actually better than the average fan when it comes to predicting a result. Now, any sports fan listening will think this is very exciting and will be looking forward to hearing what Robbie has to say. But those who are less into their sport will probably be wondering, is there something here for the hardcore economists too? Well, much of what we discuss touches on economic theories of labour productivity, agency theory and cognitive biases when it comes to predicting outcomes and decision making. So hopefully there's something here for everybody. Before we get stuck in, let me remind you that I have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Irish Econ Pod. If you enjoy this podcast to the value of a cup of coffee a month, then consider becoming a Patreon and helping to secure the future of the podcast. Okay, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I suppose the good place to start off is basically uh, thinking about sports economics and an introduction to that and what exactly that entails and... If you could tell us what exactly you guys do when it comes to... How did you get into it in the first place, I suppose, would be interesting. And then what exactly it entails? Um, When I was doing my master's a long time ago now, nearly 20 years ago now, I took an interest in um, researching sport. So my master's thesis looked at um, efficient market hypothesis in betting betting odds in Ireland. So we looked at a number of um, race courses and uh, we tried to see whether or not the the uh, the odds that were uh, prevailing in the market during the and before the off of a race and when the race uh, started whether they were able to predict the outcome of the result so I guess that was my first foray ever into it um, 
And I never anticipated then that, I never anticipated I'd stay in academia because mm. I really didn't what I would do. I was just looking for jobs like everybody in my class at the time. And because I was fortunate to, to find work uh, in academia, um, it then kind of opened up and I, you know, I just started to kind of dabble in it a little bit. And again, horse racing was where I originally started. So we started looking at how prize money was funded in horse racing. And that's, that's over 10 years ago now. Um, and then I guess I started to blog on it. And we have a blog that's running over seven years now, sportseconomics.org. And it's, it's you know, it's, as blogs go, it's quite popular. Mm. Um, some of the guys in UCC then, David, my brother, John Considine, John Eakins, Declan Jordan, started the blog too. Um, and it kind of really took off from there because people people like yourself started to take notice. Yeah. Um, and what started off as kind of just us having a bit of fun with, with sport and economics turned into something then that we could actually... First of all, research, and for the last four years now, teach um, in UCC. So, in many ways, it's taken on a life of its own. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting it's you mentioned natural progression. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned like efficient market hypothesis. It's a nice example of where you have something that happens in in a sports context, but has a nice economic, you know, framework around it, and you're, you you can use that sort of toolkit to explain what's going on and to try and get some insight. Um, that sort of, I suppose, frames a lot of what, what you do. Would that be correct? Yeah, so I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there because there's there's two things that you can look at. There's sports economics and then there's economics through sport. Now, it might sound like the same thing, but they're, they're slightly different. So sports economics looks at economic issues in the sport. So you look at competition in the Premier League or competitive balance hurling. So you're actually looking at the sport and trying to understand an economic issue. The second aspect is you want to try and understand something in economics, like moral hazard, like labor productivity, like efficient market. Yeah. In order to understand that, you just use sport. Um, and that's the beauty of it, because it can be used either way. Um, so... I guess the best thing about sport in many ways is the abundance of data that is there. And not only there, that's freely available. Yeah. Um, there's things we know about sports people that we don't know about any other industry. So if you look at a rugby player or a football player or you know, a professional athlete in, in North America, basketball, baseball or whatever, you can tell instantly their record of employment, who they played for, how long they played for, what their productivity was. So how many times they got on base, how many home runs they got, you know, how many um, shots they score, how many shots they miss, you know, how many kicks they make at conversions. So because that information is there and it's public, you're able to then measure things like productivity. So if you want to do that for any other industry in the economy, you'd find it extremely difficult to do that because accessing the data would be problematic. Um, and then when you access the data, would it be possible then to match it up with other data that you might acquire in order to answer the question? Um, and I think that's one of the big benefits of of using sports data. Yeah, because it's there. You hit something that I always think about. You think it's so like I do like research in, in environment and looking at, at innovation in that context sometimes. And 
a lot of innovations that come true, for example, electric vehicles came out of motorsport because you have this purely competitive environment. I need to win this, so I need to develop and innovate and, and things like that. So in a sense, it strips out all the other noise when it comes into other markets. No, that, that's really interesting that you mentioned Formula One because it, it, it's, yeah, I never thought of it that way, the competitive nature. And, but I think what it does and what sport does and what you mentioned there is you have a somewhat controlled environment right, where both you can actually look at an economic issue under certain parameters. Um, so if you try to look at an issue in the, the motor industry in general, so you look at people driving on the road or something like that, it's difficult because there's so many moving parts, but you take it to a more extreme environment where you have 22 cars on a circuit for X number of laps. Yeah. Um, and they do that repeatedly then through time. Um, there's things you don't need to concern yourself with that you would if you, um, if you just did that at, the, at a level of the general population. And as I said, that brings you back to the point that you can look at economic issues through the lens of sport. So one of the papers we had accepted most recently looks at labor productivity, but we used the Heineken Cup in rugby. We looked from 1996 to 2014 when the competition ended. And we look at the introduction of the bonus point in 2003. <clears throat> so the bonus point was uh, a mechanism introduced by um, Heineken Cup organizers to try and attract, uh, encourage the most attractive, exciting try scorer, uh, point scoring mechanism, which is a try. Um, because people that watch rugby or people that watch it casually will tell you, well, you know, when tries happen, it's more exciting than when a game is a lot of kicking or a lot of action is up front. Or, mm. So if you free flowing rugby with lots of tries, so that's what the bonus point was an attempt to do. Um, and what we've done is to look at, well, did this actually work? Did it encourage teams to score more tries? And then importantly, once the target was reached, did teams then um, reduce their effort? Because general labor theory will tell you, well, once the bonus is achieved or once the target is reached, what generally happens is that workers then just begin to shirk. They begin to, you know, ease off a little. Yeah. But our evidence, or what we found at least anyway, is no evidence of that. So it has worked as a mechanism to encourage more tries uh, in the Heineken Cup. Um, despite the fact that tries are now more scarce in rugby than they were 20 years ago, so there is less try scoring. Uh, it's probably a combination of professionalism, mm. um, you know, really taking root and you know, taking 20, 25 years, um, and also tactics. So better coaching, um, better tactics, particularly of weaker teams, mm. where they're now able to better teams more effectively and you don't just see this in rugby you see this in soccer as well particularly international soccer um you know you think back i remember as a child watching ireland ireland turkey four or five nil in lansdowne road qualifying for the world cup in 1990 ireland would regularly be teams three four five nil weaker teams um and despite the fact ireland are probably weaker than they were um it's rare you see a team come to the aviva now and be beaten in fact, it's rare in international football. Yeah. And even, you know, minnows, the likes of, um, you know, Andorra. Andorra. <laughs> they, they sort of have a, you know, they're, they're just better drilled. Um, so the, the rugby findings are interesting because we find no evidence of, of shirking. We find no evidence of slacking off. They'll reach four when they get to four. Um, yeah, there's no CDIC decline in the number of tries thereafter. And how did, what sort of method did you use then to try and estimate those effects? 
So we, we, we have a marginal effects model. So it's a probit model and it looks at the marginal effects. So what you need to do, well, there's a number of tests you need to run. The first of all, we do before, after, um, and then we do within game. So before a game starts, how likely are they to score four tries? That's the first hypothesis. And then we split that home away because it's important to factor in that, mm. you know, there are other mechanisms and other incentive structures just in the bonus point. And home away is one of the most prevalent, particularly rugby. Uh, and particularly in the Heineken Cup, where winning away from home um, is quite difficult. Uh, and you'll find that through time. I would caveat that when teams generally play the Italian teams away from home, they generally tend to win the stronger teams. But Munster and Leinster and you know most of the Irish provinces do find playing away from home more challenging. And the same is true then when the French and um, the English particular come to, to Ireland. It's more yeah. difficult to play. Um, so we break it down home away. We look at before the game, how likely are they to score more four tries? And we test that effect. Then we test the effect. Um, if they've scored three tries, how likely are they to score the fourth? And that's within game. So if the game is being played and they've reached three th- tries, well, will they get the bonus? <clears throat> and then we also look at, well, within game, if they've scored four tries, how likely are they to score the fifth? Um, and that's basically how the paper is set up. The likelihood of getting the fourth is the same as the likelihood of getting the fifth. Is, is that sort of what you find? Or? Well, they're, 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 they're less likely to score a fifth simply yeah. just because but there's yeah. no statistic difference. Um, they've always been less likely to score a fifth. Sure, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like the bonus point came in and now all of a sudden they're statistically uh, less likely to score a fifth try. It's just by nature, five is harder than four. Um so we control for so much as well. We control for the teams, the seeds. We control for uh, what's the group outcome. So is it a case that the team is already qualified so they mightn't be playing their first 15? Or is it the case that they're are already eliminated? Or is it the case that this is a crucial match? We control for the weather conditions. You know, was it raining on the day? So is it harder to score a try? Was it windy? So it's kicking less likely. Yeah, so it was, that was actually... Because my job... Part of my job was the data collection, and uh, yeah. it was quite tricky. Um, but we have hundreds of controls, and when you control for all of that, you'll find that, yeah, well, actually, the bonus point does work, um, and it also doesn't lead to um, a fall-off in effort. It's it's not the case that, that once they achieve this, they're just then managing the game out. Or Just before we move on, then, you mentioned the issue of crowds. Have you done any research on that and how, like, the effect? Because you, you hear anecdotally that, you know, the home game, the home advantage and all that sort of stuff, but is there, a, like, a statistical effect or is that something that's not really tested? So you will find statistical effects in home um, crowd advantage. Um, I, I've, I've read papers in that. A paper we had, which kind of touched on it, was our paper a couple of years ago on Fergie time. So um, you might have seen me present that. But our paper on Fergie time, what we wanted to see was Fergie time real. And one of the controls we had in there was attendance, match attendance. Now, it's it's not a perfect measure because, like, you know, some crowds are more vocal than others. Some supporters are more, more passionate than others. So, you know, Roy Keane famously criticised Manchester United supporters and there's not enough atmosphere in the stadium. Um and Prawn Sandwich Brigade was that the? They were yeah. You you that was exactly it. You remembered it. So he, he his argument was that even though United were at home, um, the atmosphere that was being generated in Old Trafford was the advantage it might be at other grounds. Um, 
And you might even find that some stadiums in different occasions tend to behave differently. So they often say Anfield on a European night. You know, Anfield is is, is always, um, or the atmosphere always seems to be special, but particularly special in, in European football. Um, and then you get places like Newcastle, you know, notoriously passionate fans. Um, Sunderland who are in the Premier League as well, notoriously passionate. So you could have Old Trafford that has 76,000 supporters and it may not compare the same as, you know, 50,000 at St. James's Park, yeah. um, 15,000 at Bournemouth. Um, but they do, the papers and research does find home advantage exists um, through crowd effects. The closer the teams are to the pitch, the more likely there is to be a home advantage. And that was measured using, um, I think, my memory is correct, the number of yellow cards and red cards given to home and away teams. Oh, interesting. The supporters were nearer to the referee, physically nearer. He was more likely to caution away players. Okay, so, so that would be like the old, uh, older pitches, I suppose, which were, which were probably, you're, you're right in on top, of, on top, of the, top of the team. Yeah, and I, I think it was done. I think it was done for Serie A, and the the thinking behind it was there's a number of Serie A pitches that have a running track going around it. Ah. So the Stadio Olimpico does, um, and I think the that was the initial rationale for it. So, well, are Lazio and Roma at a disadvantage at home because the supporters are you know 50 yards away from the referee, and then they might already be. Whereas if if your pitch is you know if the touchline is two yards away from the, the assistant referee can the assistant referee be pressurised? And I think what you're going to see now, because the Premier League is just so um, surreal at the moment, you're going to see some really nice papers come out because I don't know if this will hold up statistically, but anecdotally, I think there's less um, cautions. Mm. Um, I'm not sure, has there been a red card yet? And so you mentioned your Fergie time. Now maybe you could explain, remind us what Fergie time was and how that, what the bias is there. Yes, again, the, the rationale for that one was I remember watching Manchester City against Man United in that famous game in 2009 or 10 when Michael Owen I remember, I remember that game when, when Owen scored the goal in the last minute. Yeah, and Craig Bellamy had equalised in injury time and I, I think there were four minutes of injury time to be played and Bellamy scored after 3.28 or something. It was literally seconds left and he obviously celebrated and then the game restarted. And Owen scored the winning goal on 5.51, I think. So it was nearly two minutes extra played. Um, now, Bellamy scored with about 30 seconds to go. So even factoring in the celebration, there was still 30 seconds left. And I think there was another 90 played after. And I guess that was the kind of tipping point where I said, God, you know, I'm starting to think this is actually real. You know, Maybe there is, maybe this thing is real. Because people have talked about it for years. Because Manchester United were so good at scoring late goals, so so that the the, the referees were bound to Fer- Ferguson's sort of the pressure and his his aura. Well, it was the, the the belief that Ferguson had a kind of he was he had an ability to influence um, the amount of time added on. Yeah. So it might be four minutes instead of three, or it might be five minutes instead of four, and also that not only would they add on a little bit more, they then play beyond it. Um, so we collected all the data. We got three seasons of data. We got every game because you can't just do it for Man United. You have to see it for every team. Um, and 
We couldn't find it. We couldn't find any evidence. Um, we did find a small bit of bias towards bigger teams when they were losing, but only when the match was already decided. So what I mean by that is they were losing by at least two goals. Um, then they might get four, five, six minutes. But in games that could be decided by one goal, so if the game was drawn or if there was one goal between the teams either way, um, we couldn't find any evidence that there was... Um, or the referees weren't being impartial. So, you know, it was it was a, an endorsement of what the referees were doing. You might see Man United score a late goal against City. You might see them get 90 seconds more than we thought they might get. But if these things happen, they are very, very rare. Mm. Um, don't have any statistically standing, if that makes sense, in terms of any different what might normally happen. Yeah, so just to, to, to drill a bit deeper then, so you you got all the data for all the different games. Did you estimate what the probability of added time was in each game and compare so what you have to do then is, again you have to control for everything so you have to control for the number of substitutes you have to control for the number of yellow cards red cards serious injuries who the referee is who the teams are who's playing at home number between and again you have once you have all these controls in there you're kind of then isolating the effect so what you'll find is Lots of things were statistically significant that you'd expect. So substitutions added time on. It was about 12 seconds. Um, a red card added a little bit on. Um, a serious injury was the most significant because naturally it would. If, if a player is down for six, seven, eight minutes, you're naturally going to get seven, eight, nine minutes of injury time. Lots of the things that we expected to be significant were. Um, there was one interesting finding is that the margin... Uh, between the teams was negative. And again, it was something I expected to find because what you, you'll often find is if a team is beating another team comfortably, so let's suppose Chelsea are at home to uh, Burnley and are winning 5-0 um, and then they'll go to the board and they say, oh, there's one minute of added time or two minutes of added time. And it's almost as if the referee is kind of, you know, putting the, the losers out of their misery. And again, I remember thinking, but, you know, the referee should be impartial here. The added time is the added time. If there's three minutes or four minutes or six minutes, that's what the added time is. So we did find that. So when when a game was decided, the amount of added time was significantly lower. But in terms of giving extra time, we didn't find anything. We found referees were, were impartial. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One thing that we mentioned before we went on air was in relation to that, in terms of betting odds and the probability of, of a draw being maybe undervalued. Uh, relative to maybe other things maybe you could talk about that a bit like I always think about all Ireland finals and that if we're anywhere we're close to to, uh, to a draw the referee will, will, will play for the draw nearly or you get that sense that that's what's going to happen but uh, when it comes to the betting odds perhaps people maybe undervalue the value of, of, of a draw relative to maybe other outcomes I think you hit on a couple of brilliant things there and try and recall them but I think in hurling there wasn't a draw for decades 40, 50 years or something. And then I think we've had two or three draws in the last 10 years. Uh, remember Kilkenny and Galway drew and it was the first draw in ages. Um, and there's been a, a couple of them since. Um, and I think you're right to say that if a game is tight, there will be that little bit of extra time played. And it, there's almost a, an opportunity for teams to equalise. So if, if a team behind is uh, on the attack, the referee will naturally leave them play out and, and if miss, it's kind of a case as well, look, you had an opportunity. And my colleague, John Constantine, you see, has done a little bit of blogging on that and what, what is anecdotally is what you'll find is that if you're losing, you're more likely to get frees for things like um, too many steps or holding or whereas if you're winning, um, you're more likely to concede frees for these reasons. Um, so there's an element that, you know, they're trying to balance up a little bit and there are reasons where there's a bit of judgment, a bit of discretion. Yeah, look, you know, we, we all suffer from these behavioural biases and it may be subconscious, but you're, I guess you're just trying to give teams an opportunity. Um, and uh, it, it it can have a significant outcome on the game because particularly in Gaelic games, momentum is very important. And a team is winning by four, five, six points and then has easy freeze given against them. You know, that can be chipped away. Six can become five, five can be four, and so on. And there's a bit of momentum building. Um, and maybe that's why you're seeing more draws. To bring it to our paper, so it's the one we've had accepted most recently. It's with John Eakins and David Butler uh, in UCC. We looked at pundit predictions, and we wanted to see if the pundits actually knew what they were talking about. And we did this for the Premier League for three seasons between 2015 and 2018. Um, and we collected... Three and a half thousand observations from the pundits, um, the likes of Paul Merson and Matt Letizia and Charlie Nicholas, the guys you see regularly on on Sky Sports and Mark Lawrence and BBC, um, and we just wanted to see, you know, how, how do these guys fare? Uh, so we were then able to compare them to a website called Superbrew, and Superbrew is a, is a game that I, I hadn't heard of it. My co-author found it. John Eakins, and he said, well, look, we have this game. It's online. Anyone can play it. It's for free, uh, where people predict Premier League matches. Um, and we had 8 million players and over 32 million observations. So what we could can do is we could compare the pundit predictions to just the average guy, just like me or you. 
to see, well, do the pundits actually know what they're talking about? Um, so that's the first kind of test we did. And we found that, yes, in fact, the pundits were better. Um, they were better than ordinary people at picking the outcome of, of games. And where they were better was in the outcome of draws. So ordinary people don't tend to like to pick draws. Um, so Man United play Sheffield United, Man United are going to win. Other people that don't like Man United will say Sheffield United will win. There is a natural tendency to deviate away from the draw because the neutral outcome, people feel like they're not predicting anything, when in fact they are. But because it's a neutral outcome, it's less popular. So about one in 10 games in the Premier League end in the draw, uh, sorry, in a nil-nil draw. And the incidence of nil-nil predictions is about one in 100. If we're one down a bet, there's good value in the nil-nil draw. Well, well, what you'll find is a nil-nil draw will usually be probably about seven or eight to one. Now, if it happens one in 10, you're going to lose money. Um, and on average, it's going to happen one in 10. And this is the beauty of the betting odds. I mean, the betting odds are factoring in almost everything. Almost, And I say almost because the pundits could marginally outperform the betting markets. So if you follow the pundit and just backed the home draw away outcome that they predicted, you would actually have beaten the bookies um, slightly. Not a huge profit, but slightly. Um, the average person couldn't beat the bookie. So the pundits do know something that the rest of us don't know. And then we took it a step further and we actually looked at the match outcome because what they do is they'll predict the outcome. They won't just say Spurs are going to win. They're going to say Spurs will win 3-1. But even the pundits can't do the scorecasts. So if you follow the pundit, you follow the scorecast, you lose money. It's just too complex. There's too many moving variables. So betting on match outcomes, as in trying to predict the score of the match, is an extremely complex task. And it's likely if you do that, you're going to lose, you're going to lose money. That, yeah, and I, I imagine for soccer as well, when it's such, such, such a thick market and everybody's, there's a lot of resources going in to... Uh, on the side of the bookies to try and make sure that they're efficient in terms of their odds. I imagine if, if you if you want to make money, you want to beat the bookies, you want to do it in an, in an area where you know more than them. And maybe if you went down to your local Junior B uh, GA pitch or whatever, I don't know, but... Uh, I think I think where you could potentially, well, definitely lose less money is in drawn outcomes. So the prediction of drawn outcomes seem to happen more frequently than... Most people estimate, um, and you could get lucky. You could, you could, you could bat nil nils or one alls, and you could get two or three nil nils in a weekend, or two or three one alls. Um, in football, the most regular scoreline is one nil. The second most regular scoreline is one all. The third most regular scoreline is nil one, and the fourth most regular is nil nil. So, the four most likely outcomes have no goals, one goal, or two goals. Whereas when people back scorecasts, even when pundits predict things, they'll say things like 2-2 or 3-2 or 3-0 or 4-1. And unfortunately, football isn't that exciting, I'm afraid. No, yeah, definitely. I think our our own bias there, what we want to happen, maybe influences what we think might happen. Um, So another thing that, that you've worked on that's quite interesting and... 
I think it was the first time I was aware of, of this work that you, that you guys do is on um, like the cutoff for underage football. It resonated with me because like I was never much of a footballer, but the only time I ever got my game was when I'm born, my birthday is in March, so I got an extra year. And by default, I got my game then that year. But basically... I think your your analysis was to look at um, for that cutoff and people at the upper end, maybe perhaps some more developed. Yeah, so we we weren't the first to look at this, and we we were definitely not going to be the last because loads of people are are looking at it. It, it, it originated about a hundred years ago, nearly, where um, researchers started looking at children going into primary school to see if older children were more capable than younger children, and no surprise, they were. And what they found was that this persisted for some time, but eventually it faded. And the reason it faded was because schooling was compulsory. So it was just a convergence, a little bit like countries growing. You, you find the countries converge to a certain level of GDP. Um, so in school, you might have been born in January. I might have been born in December. There's 12 months between us almost. We're in the same class. You were miles ahead of me when we're in junior infants, senior infants, and as it goes on. But by the time we get to fifth, sixth class, or even secondary school, there is no difference. Then people started doing it for sport. And no surprise, they found exactly the same thing because being born earlier in the, in the calendar year was a proxy for physique. And, and that's what it was. It's called a relative age effect. What it should really call is a relative physique effect because you assume somebody that's born 11 or 10 or 12 months earlier than someone else is just physically stronger. So again, they found it, and they found it in every sport they looked at, soccer, rugby, cricket. Um, I mean, you'll find it in horse racing because horses are bred to be born in the earlier months of the year, January, February, March, um, because every horse has a date of birth of the 1st of January. So you do, don't, don't want a horse to be born you know, in June, July, August, um, simply because by the end of that year, the horse will be technically won. Uh, and if it's going to run as a two-year-old or three-year-old, it's going to be only two and a half or three and a half as, as, or, or one and a half, as the case might be. Um, so it was found in soccer, no surprise, and in sport. And it was found in gymnastics as well, which is really interesting because the effect was the opposite in gymnastics. You were better off to be born in December because being smaller in gymnastics is an advantage. But the problem you have with sport that you don't have at school is that dropout is possible. Whereas you don't drop out of school, um, or the vast majority of children don't, in sport dropout is really easy. And what they were finding is kids were just dropping out because they couldn't compete. Um, so we found this in, in soccer, we found it in Irish under 21 internationals, and we found that, you know, this was just January, February, March, April, all the way down to December. The problem with that, the problem we couldn't publish that was because that had been found so many times across so many countries. So where my co-author David uh, had an inspired idea was he said, well, in Ireland, the cutoff used to be the 1st of August, and it was when I was a child. And in 1997, it changed. So I played the first 15 years of my life under an August cutoff. And then when I was 15, it went to a January cutoff. So he had the idea, well, well let's go back and look at the under-21s that played under the August cutoff. So we went and collected that data, and we had a right job at collecting that because most of that data is not available online. And again, he had another inspired decision. He went up to our attic and he found old programs, matches that my father would have had. And what you would find in a program, and I suggest you do this the next time we're able to go to a match uh, when you have a program, just look at the dates of birth. And it doesn't matter if this is hurling or rugby or soccer because it's usually the name of the date of birth. 
and a, a remarkable amount of them will be born in the first quarter. Uh, the vast majority will probably be born in the first half of the year, so somewhere from January to June. Um, and in some cases, they might all be born uh, in that part of the year. But we went and collected the data prior to the cutoff. And what did we find prior to the change? The advantage was for August, September, October. Um, so being born in January wasn't an advantage. Being born in August was. And we, we joked at the time because Roy Keane was born in August. So I think I think it was the 4th of August. Um, so it was the perfect time to, to be born under that cutoff. Um, as you take, I think Ronaldo was born in February. And again, for Ronaldo, that was the perfect month to be born or almost perfect. Um, and that's how we got it published because now we have this lovely natural experiment. It's nothing to do with January. It's to do when you have the cutoff. And then it does beg to the question, well, this is sort of inevitable in many ways because it's just a matter of where you slice it. Um, and how you overcome it is you try and train coaches to say, well, look, it's all about physique. It's not all about winning right now. It's about trying to get players to play a certain way so that when they're 18, 19, 20 and they're physically the same, they're all still in the game. So... The coach's incentive is, is to win the game and then they say, right, this guy's a big guy here. Now you have to go in, go in hard for the tackles or whatever. And that's the way we're going to win the game as opposed to maybe taking the longer term approach and trying to focus on the skills. I guess it's just the coach because the coach always gets to kind of rap here. It's the kids as well want to win the game. So, and the parents. so it's not just the coaching. We want to win this. The kids just want to win the game. So the kids have no interest per se, in developing the other kids that are not, you know, up to the standard. They just want the best team on the pitch because they just want to win the game. And I was that kid. I'm sure you were that kid when you played as well. So the coach wants to win. The parents want to win. The kids want to win. Um, but trying to get them all on the same page is very, very difficult because they don't think about years down the line. How could they? Um, and again, this is not an Irish problem either. This is a problem that's throughout Europe. Um, like so Spain has this problem and Spain plays wonderful football and has been doing so for you know 15 years at this stage nearly Netherlands has this problem Belgium has this problem but I think identifying it and knowing it's there and trying to educate people that it is there is the first step and it's particularly the first step for a kid that is a good player and he or she cannot get into a team just because they're not physically strong enough um, and to tell them to stick at it. And on foot of that then you're saying you're working with the FAI. Could you tell us a bit about that maybe? They're really moving in, in, in a really positive direction in terms of research and trying to understand uh, the game in Ireland. Um, and I guess our work on relative age, because we would have presented that to them uh, and they're very much aware of this. Um, and they're interested in, in you know, realizing the data that we're creating because... FAI has done in the last 10 years or so is roll out underage leagues. What you will find is the lower you go, um, the more likely you are to get a relative age effect. And I, you just need to be very much aware that when you are down dealing with 13-year-olds and 12-year-olds and they're playing League of Ireland soccer for Cork or Shamrock Rovers or Waterford or Galway, whatever the case might be, um, it's really important that you manage expectations um, of coaches and players and parents uh, to ensure that you are developing the player. 
Okay, my own thoughts on the broadcasting thing is that uh, before when it was the, the subscription type model, we had one, one provider and it was Sky. And now we're moving on to maybe more than one provider. And it seems that for the consumer, there's no benefit to this competition because we now have to pay for more than one service. Whereas for the producer of it, it, it it's perfect because they have... They've sort of divided up their product and had people bidding against each other for divisions of that product. So they're maybe maximizing the rents that they're getting and then eking into maybe our consumer surplus or whatever. Um, but you've done work on the on the broadcasting. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that. I think I think you've, you've summed that up perfectly because this is not going to change because it's in the interest of the seller be, because... Um, the Premier League maximizes broadcasting revenue and broadcasting revenue has exploded in the last 30 years. Uh, and the ni- agreement in 1992 with the Premier League and the, in, the arrival of Scotty changed everything. Uh, and prior to that, games were on free-to-air television. And actually, it's quite amazing that the first free-to-air TV game in nearly 30 years was on, um, on Friday night um, on BBC. And it was the first time BBC had a free-to-air uh, match in the Premier League ever and in top flight football since 1988, ITV took it off them prior to Sky coming in. So what's happened there is what has driven the exorbitant increase in transfer fees and um, player salaries. So long as the broadcasting revenue sustains itself, there's no bubble per se in what's happening. Um, If the broadcasting revenue were to dry up, it would change everything. And I think... uh, experiences of the last number of months have demonstrated that probably most people thought could never happen, um, that you could have Premier League matches played in empty stadiums. And I would teach this in sports economics in UCC and teach the fact that, look, ticket sales are nice in the sense that they're a form of revenue, but they're not the most important part of club revenue um, at the elite end. In fact, the more ticket revenue becomes important, the less elite the club is. So when you rely on ticket revenue as in going through the gate, uh, it's a precarious position to be in because it's very variable, it's very volatile. Um, and you're relying on a very narrow window of about an hour to generate revenue for two weeks. Um, so League of Ireland is largely reliant on ticket sales. Um, if you go down the leagues, League 1, League 2 in England, it's, it's people going in to pay in. The further you go up, the more it's about broadcasting. Um, But the other really interesting thing now that we can now witness is that it is not the same without spectators in the stadium. It's it's a much diminished product Um, and it feels different. They have these fake crowd noises as well. What that demonstrates is that the supporter is actually paying for the product that they create. Um, so it's a very unique relationship that when you pay for a product, you usually just get that product and you use it, right? But the, the, the supporter is part of the atmosphere and the atmosphere that's created is what makes the game good. So they are paying for something that they create themselves. Um, it's not dissimilar to going to a pub, I suppose, that, um, you know, we're all part of um, the atmosphere in the pub and that's what makes it feel good. But you're creating that yourself a small part of it, albeit, but you are creating it. Now, for most pubs, you don't pay to get into it. Um, so you don't have to pay to create what you're creating. But sport is different. And maybe, maybe who knows, this will change things. 
uh, and supporters groups will now pressure owners and say, well, look, ticket prices should be reduced because we are critical to this product. We are part of um, the spectacle. Um, and I don't think supporters would ever be left in for free, but leaving them in for free would be much, much better than the spectacle that we have right now. If I was not running a club, I'd be setting the ticket price. I'd be making sure that I can fill the stadium, definitely. And I'd be setting the ticket price, uh, the maximum price that gets the stadium full. But then you think about, well, you want to make sure you get the hardcore fans in because they're the ones who are going to be making the most noise and creating the atmosphere. So maybe you want to segregate. You want to maybe allocate certain number of tickets to your season ticket holders who come from the supporters club versus the pro on sandwich brigade who are maybe just going to stick quiet in, 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 the, in, this, in the big box or whatever. No, but you, you're right because clubs do have this. They have special sections of the ground that are cordoned off for singing sections or noisier sections. So they are, they are attempting to do this. What the research shows is that the vast majority of owners, um, and this is US research, so owners of franchises, price the tickets in the inelastic portion of the demand curve. Uh, and by that, they mean is if they raised price, it would actually raise total revenue. So it could charge more, right? And just choose not to. Now, there's a number of reasons or thinking behind that. One is that they have so much money, they don't, they don't really care about the profit the club is generating. Empathy with the fans is another one. Um, another theory is that it's pressure from fans that, you know, supporters pressure them to keep tickets low. Another theory is that, well, actually, they, they, it's a loss leader. So your your ticket isn't as expensive as it might be, but your beer and your pie and your burger are overpriced. Um, so there are a number of different theories behind that. We've seen people object, supporters groups object to ticket prices, rising ticket prices. Liverpool did it three or four years ago. There was a walkout um, near the end of the match. Bayern Munich fans did it. Famously, in the Champions League, when they went to the Emirates, they complained about the price of tickets for uh, Arsenal and Bayern Munich. Ticket prices in Germany are generally much, much lower um, than they are in, in England. So, yeah, I think you might see a fallout from this, is that tickets might become, might become a bit cheaper. Yeah, and I wonder then, in terms of the whole broadcasting model, like how sustainable is that long run? At the moment, there is an insatiable demand for live sport. And it doesn't matter what sport it is, if it's GA in Ireland, we've seen the GA move from free to air, which it always was, be it RTE or TG Cahar or TV3, to subscription uh, with Sky and air sport and um, providers like that. Um, and you've seen it in the Premier League previous. And if you take the Premier League model, it was Sky, it's now Sky and BT and uh, Amazon. So there is no shortage of people wanting to buy this content. Sport is becoming unique in the sense that um, it's one of the few things now that brings people together to watch things. Um, so people will actually sit down and watch an All-Ireland semi-final together or a Munster final. Um, it's one of the few things people view by appointment. And what I mean by that is the residual value to sport, as in, I'll watch, I'll go on to the planner and watch it. Nobody does that, or almost nobody. You watch it live, and then you probably never watch it again. Um, so it's one of the very few things now that we actually say, well, what time is it on? And it's on at eight o'clock, it's on at half seven, it's on at four o'clock, and you sit there and watch it. 
most of the things like the news or books they might watch, you know, they just will wait and will I get the box set or I just download it from Netflix. So it's starting to fulfill a quite unique base in the, the broadcasting schedule. And the other thing is that if you go back, look historically at this, there were very few channels. So the sports providers actually had no bargaining power. So the, 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 the suppliers of the, the channels held all the power uh, and they demanded the content they want. We now live in, in an environment where you literally have hundreds and hundreds of channels. So there is an insatiable demand for content. Um, and because there are so many channels, because they all need content all of the time, there is no reason to suggest why this model is under any pressure. What you might find is a leveling off because there was an example of, they believed it was a winner's curse. In the case of the Premier League, it's a sealed bid auction. So you only get to bid once and you don't know what others are bidding. So there's a chance you'll overbid. Like a first price sealed build auction or? First price sealed bid. So there's a chance you'll overbid. And Sky has always had pole position in the Premier League, even though that they share it, first of all, with Satanta Sports, then with ESPN, then BT and now BT and Amazon. They've always held pole position. They've always had Super Sunday. Um, and Sunday is regarded as the primetime slot, four o'clock on a Sunday. Um, they've never given that up. If you want to make sure you're going to keep that, you have to bid high um, because you don't know what someone else will bid. Now, whether you overbid, who knows? Um, the most recent round of bidding, which was 1920 to 21, 22, it was about the same as 16 to 19. So you have a kind of a sense that we probably bid an awful lot. It was 4.8 billion in 2016 for the three seasons. It was about the same in 2019. There had been a big jump um, from 2010 to 2014, a big jump. You might find in the world that we now live in, when the next round is negotiated, not a significant reduction, but you might find reduction. No, I, I just wondering, just when you're talking about the... Um the bidding process, like, is it is it one bundle or multiple bubbles? So there's seven, there's seven different packages. Originally, there were six packages, and this is where the whole issue came came to a head, is that in 1992, when Sky got access to 60 matches at the time, I think it was, they had all 60. And then it, that went up to 110, 120. And you might recall in the early noughties, they had what was called Prem Plus, which was pay-per-view. So if you had the Sky basic packages in Sky Sports, there were still some matches you could watch. They were on this pay-per-view channel. Um, but the European Commission ruled in 2006 that this was um, anti-competitive because there was a company with a monopoly and they said it, it, it ran against European competition law. And they said from the 2007-7 season, there had to be competition. So there were six packages and they said one provider could buy a maximum of five so Sky did exactly that in 2006. They bought five and Satanta bought one. So, but Satanta was short-lived because of the financial crisis. Um, so Satanta had it for two seasons and the final season was sold to ESPN. Uh, and then it rolled over in 2010 and again, Sky bought five and ESPN had one. That was okay in Ireland because you got ESPN free through Sky. So there was no big deal, right? If you were in the UK, you had to pay for ESPN. But in Ireland, things changed when BT came in in 2013 because BT bought one package, 23 games, and Sky had the remainder. But now you had to pay extra for BT. And it was then I thought, you know, 
I don't know, is competition actually helpful? But it, it's not competition at all. It's different monopolies in different markets. Maybe we could finish off. I think you've done some work on horse racing, if you want to discuss that. So the, the paper we have, that it, it's a working paper, it's not quite ready to go. I'm presenting it virtually in at the North American Sports Economics Association conference next week. And I don't know, I don't know how that's going to go down because it's uh, British horse racing. And we wanted to see whether or not elite jockeys justified uh, their salaries. So jockeys um, normally are freelance. And what you mean by freelance is they can ride any horse. Um, so if they ride freelance, they get the riding fee, which is £120. And they get a percentage of the prize money if they finish in the prize money. And the percentage declines then whether they finish first uh, or in places. But the most elite jockeys have what are called retainer contracts. So what a retainer contract does is it ties them to a particular owner. And these are the elite owners. Um, they are... Um, <clears throat> there, are, there are horses that run in famous colours like Godolphin, like Khalid Abdullah, like Sheikh Amal and Matum, um, Frankel colours uh, for Khalid Abdullah. Um, and jockeys, you know, the likes of Frankie de Tori, um, the likes of Paul Hannigan, um, Jim Crowley, O'Sheen Murphy, um, the elite jockeys in the sport. So what we've been able to do is, again, collect data. We have 12 years of data on this one, and we can look at their income um, and the number of mounts they had and a productivity measure. And the beauty of the productivity measure is we didn't create it. It's an algorithm that's run by a company called Racing Research. And they won't tell us how the algorithm actually worked, but you, you could pay for it, um, but it costs quite a lot of money, but that doesn't matter too much. What they've kindly done is given us their data because you have to pay for the data. Um, and they've given it to us if, um, for free for the academic research. Um, it controls for everything, basically. And when a horse finishes in a race, it will tell you the contribution that the jockey made to the horse. So if you're a jockey and you're riding the favourite and the, the horse wins and people say, well, wasn't the jockey great? Well, the algorithm goes one step beyond that and says, well, how much should the horse have won by? Um, Based on all its previous performance. Exactly. All the previous performance, given the conditions, distance, the ground, the opposition. And what they might actually find is, well, should have won by greater distance. So in that case, the jockey then is given a slightly negative score, right? So you could be riding a 51 shot and you could finish third. And even though you finish third, that jockey gets an enhanced score because racing research would assume that that horse would have done poorer, right? So that's the beauty of that productivity measure. Um, and then we control for all the obvious controls, the, the venue, the track, the course, the trainer, the conditions, the weight, the odds. Um, and what we found is that elite jockeys, just like the pundits in our paper, are actually elite. They do perform statistically better um, than they should, even taking into account that they ride the best horses for the best owners and they're riding favourites. They do that little bit ever again. Um, and significantly so. And we also find that when they leave these retainer contracts, and some of them do because they just become so good, they don't even need a retainer contract. And Frankie Dettori is a good example of that. They kind of ride freelance. They pick and choose. Um, they still do better. So they kind of have this legacy effect uh, where because they've been a high-profile elite jockey riding with a retainer, they can now come off that retainer owners still pick they know they're kind of elite or they have this kind of aura about them 
I, I, I'd wonder then what is driving their, like, at least, is it a thing that, like, there could be the obvious reason that they're just better, basically, and that's fair enough. Or is there just, like, a feedback effect that if you are in with a good crowd and then you end up doing well because of that, because because you're around, you have good people around you, people treat you well, and then that means that you end up doing a bit better. I wonder is there a way to get that, get at that with your data, maybe look at, I don't know, control for these sort of facts. They must be picked for a reason. So they must be identified for a reason. And when they're picked, they do then overperform. Um, now, it might be, as you say, just being treated better, you know, being having better access to facilities or services, or maybe it's confidence. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, our racing research measure captures all of that because they're still outperforming. Does that make sense? So even though the best horses for the best owners and the shortest odds, so they should be winning more, they're still winning significantly more than they might otherwise do. It's hard, it's hard to know how, how you would actually get at that. Oh, and as I said, I don't know. I don't understand. My, my interest in horse racing is purely as a spectator. Uh, I don't understand the um, mechanics of um, the three, that side of the industry. Um, of course, yeah, yeah, no, of course. No, it's just something that, that came to mind there when you, when you were talking about it. That's everything I have on the list. I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to cover or... No, I think you've... Uh, <laughs> All right, well, thanks a million, Robbie. That was great. Uh, no, you're welcome. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks very much. My thanks to Robbie and hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Don't forget to share with friends or family if you enjoy. A five-star review on Apple Podcasts always helps to spread the word. And if you want to chip in to cover costs, uh, the Patreon is at www.patreon.com forward slash Irish Econ Pod. Okay, well, thanks for listening and all the best. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 